Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, Romans 1. Scripture reading will be verses 1 through 4. And then we'll get back to Luke in a few moments. And uh, following the reading of Scripture, we'll sing the glory of pottery, which was printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you want to turn now in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, we'll pick that up here in a few moments and complete this chapter this morning. There are doctrinal teachings of the Bible that are uh, not only clearly presented, but fairly easily understood and grasped and embraced. Uh, Things like uh, salvation by grace alone through faith, justification by faith alone, the inspiration and authority of the Holy Scriptures. We see those teachings in in the Bible, and they're clear, and we can embrace them. And uh, not everyone will like all those, but nevertheless, we can see them and understand them clearly. Even a child can understand a lot of these things. But there are some doctrines in the Bible that are taught, and we can clearly see them, but it's a little more challenging to put it all together and understand all the nuances of it. One of those doctrines is the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, The Bible, particularly in the New Testament, makes clear that there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see that clearly taught in the Bible, and the church had many battles defending that and and even giving greater clarification to that. So we we understand that and we, we, we get it, But being able to put it all together, how can it be that there's this one God and yet three? And there's a challenge sometimes in our uh, full comprehension of every aspect of that. But one of the other doctrines that's a challenge for us is the person of Christ. Uh, The Bible, and particularly the New Testament, makes very clear that Christ is in one person both God and man. Absolutely essential, crucial truths. And we can, under, we can get it, we can understand it, we can see that the Bible teaches that, but how can it be that the eternal God became man and dwells as God and man in one person? And uh, it challenges us a little bit. Well, as we get into Luke we will see that these two truths are being brought to our attention in the text before us this morning. Part of why I had us look at Romans 1 as a scripture reading this morning is because he, Paul, succinctly puts these things together. According to his human nature, he's a descendant of David. He is a man with all the frailties of the flesh, with all the frailties of our human bodies. He was a man. According to 
his uh, descendants, uh, he was a descendant of David. According to his humanity, he was a descendant of David. But according to uh, his deity, the Spirit of God declares uh, that he's the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So there's clear, succinct statement that Jesus is man and Jesus is God. And so the two categories we're looking at today is uh, with the title that's in the message, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Now, Son of Man is also a particular title of the Messiah that has some other implications coming from the prophecy of Daniel. But I'm having us use it to focus and think about the Son of Man as his humanity. He is deity and he is humanity in one person. And so we come to uh, looking at the Son of God aspect, but we read uh, Luke's account of Jesus' baptism. So you see in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love with you, I am well pleased. Luke's account of how the baptism went is very short, very brief. When all the people were coming to be baptized, Jesus was baptized too. He doesn't say any more than that. All the other three gospels, the other three gospels give us much more information. One commentator is explaining uh, why Luke did this. He says, for to Luke, the important question is not how the baptism took place, or what was done or said by John, but what God revealed concerning the person and nature of Jesus on this occasion right at the commencement of his public appearance. He wants us to really get what happens after the baptism, and we're going to spend some time on that. But I don't want to neglect what the other gospel writers tell us about what Uh, went on at the baptism for the reason that we think about why was Jesus baptized? It's a valid question. Why did he have to go through baptism uh, here by John? And there are two main thoughts. One comes out of Matthew's account of the interaction between Jesus and John. Jesus came to be baptized by John in the Jordan. And John's taken aback. He's surprised. Uh, And John says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? Uh, Jesus had no sin. He did not need to be baptized for repentance. But Jesus' response to John was, let it be so now uh, that it might fulfill all righteousness. what What is he getting at? Jesus didn't need to be baptized. How is it that he's fulfilling all righteousness? Well, Dick Gaffin, OPC minister and theologian in his book, The Fullness of Time, he comments about this. He says, Jesus' baptism is not merely a personal matter. If that were the case, it would make no sense. Because as an individual, Jesus had no need of repentance And repentance is what submission to John's water baptism symbolized. 
The event at the Jordan is not personal or merely individual, but it had clearly epical and redemptive historical significance. By submitting to John's baptism, Jesus shows himself to be the representative of his people. Why did Jesus have to go through the baptism of repentance? It's so that he might be your substitute. That he might be your representative. That he might stand in your place. That he would go into the water as it were, taking upon you all your sin, taking upon himself all your sin, and that that sin might be washed away. It's so that Jesus might be a sacrifice, taking our sins upon himself. Sinclair Ferguson, I think I mentioned his podcast for Ligonier Ministries last week. It's uh, called Unseen Things, really well worth your five to seven minutes Uh, Monday through Friday, listening to that. But about a month or so ago, he was talking about baptism in a general sense, but he reflected on Jesus' baptism. And the way he described it, I thought, was so, um, was gripping to me. The people had come to the water, repenting of their sin. And their sins were, as it were, washed away by the Jordan. So all their pollution was now in the Jordan River. And Jesus comes, the one without sin, and he walks down into that pollution so that he could take it away, so that he could redeem it. And he bore in himself our sins. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Why did Jesus go through this? It was to be our substitute, to bear our sin. He went into the waters of judgment, but he didn't stay there. He came out of those waters, and as he will go into the grave after the judgment of sin and himself in the cross, and he will come out of that grave victorious. So Jesus was baptized as a substitute for us. But taking his baptism and then moving forward into what Luke tells us about what happens after the baptism, there's another reason why Jesus was baptized. Uh, Not only that he'd be our substitute, but in the Old Testament... There's uh, the practice was for priests uh, to some degree with kings and perhaps in occasion with a prophet. But for priests particularly, when they were going to be installed in the office of the priesthood, they had to be set apart to do that work. And there were two steps in their being set apart to do that work. One was they had to be washed. Their clothing was washed. They were washed. And then they had to be anointed. And the oil would be poured out on their heads. And they would be equipped and set apart for the work of the priesthood. Well, Jesus Christ also, he is washed. And as we'll, re- as we'll reflect again in a minute, he will be anointed. This is the first 
step on his journey of his work as a Messiah. And he has to be set apart for that work. And he's set apart for that work by the triune God. We see all members of the Trinity at work in this anointing, in this setting apart of Christ for his work as Redeemer. We have, of course, the Son there who's submitting to all that. So that the second person of the Trinity is there. Then we have the Holy Spirit who comes down from heaven in the form of a dove and alights himself on the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes and he's anointing him. He's filling him. He's equipping him. He's setting him apart for the work as our Redeemer. Uh, the, the beautiful picture of the dove coming down from heaven. We see uh, elements of this in the Old Testament. In Genesis 1-2, the earth was formless and void, darkness was over the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the water. He was there, part of the creation, um, bringing along with the, the God the Father and God the Son this world into being. Uh, we have kind of an image of this, too, at the conclusion of the flood. The flood waters are beginning to decline, and Noah sends out a dove. And what does the dove do? It, it flies back and forth across, across the waters as they recede until it comes to dry land. Uh, the picture of the dove being the anointing is the, the picture of the new creation that the Messiah will bring, that God will bring. God describes himself as a, as a bird hovering over Israel as they're going through the, the, uh, the wilderness wanderings till they come to the promised land. It's the picture of God not only equipping us and being with us and watching over us, but bringing us to the new creation, uh, to the new life that God has for us in the work of the Spirit in our lives as well. And this is what's being accomplished. It's not as though Jesus had no fullness of the Spirit before this. Some heretical views go along that line and say, well, he was just a man and he was anointed with the Holy Spirit here at this point. And when he dies, then the Spirit leaves him. No, no. He's the second person of the Trinity. He and the Holy Spirit and God are one. But it's a demonstration of Jesus in his work as Messiah, the God-man, to to do the work that the Father has given him to do. And then we have that third element following his baptism in the voice of the Father that came from heaven and said, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. The, The son gives his affirmation of what he's doing. The Spirit anoints him and gives his affirmation for what he's doing. And the Father speaks from heaven and says, you are my son. He affirms and supports his work uh, that his great pleasure was in his son. With you, I am well pleased. It's an affirmation and a help uh, to the Messiah to do the work that he's been called to do. The Father spoke from heaven only two two other times in the the life of Jesus. Uh, The next time he would speak would be on the Mount of Transfiguration. And you remember that Jesus was there with Moses and Elijah and he was transfigured before them and Peter opens his mouth and says, well, let's make some tents and stay here forever. 
We don't need to leave the mountain. We'll just stay right here. And the father out of the cloud speaks. But he's not speaking to Jesus at this point. He's speaking to the disciples. And he's saying to the disciples, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. But it's the father, again, affirming the relationship with the son, affirming his love, affirming what Christ is here to do. The other time that he speaks from heaven is in John chapter 12 when some Greeks come to seek out Jesus. And Jesus knows that this is a signal, this is a sign that his uh, crucifixion is near at hand. And he speaks to the disciples and he says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow. I'm troubled. But what shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. It was for this hour that I came. And then Jesus, looking heavenward, speaks to the Father. And he says, Father, glorify your name. And God the Father, again, speaks from heaven. And the Father says to Jesus, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And Jesus said, this wasn't for my benefit. It's for you. It was for you, your benefit. That you would see the Father's delight in him and his approval of the work that he will do. So we have the clear revelation that Jesus is the Son of God. And we need to know that and embrace that. But we have beginning at verse 23, this genealogy, which highlights uh, the fact that Jesus also is the son of man. He's a man. He's a human. And uh, I won't read all of it. Uh, We're getting a little short on time, but let me read some of it. In verse 23, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. And he was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph. And then it continues on for a while. Let's pick it up in verse 31. The son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon. Hopefully you're, you're recognizing some of these names. Verse 33, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Zerug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And we have this genealogy, and if you compare it with the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, 
you'll see that there are similarities. There are some significant differences as well. Uh, there are both the, linea- the, uh, the genealogies of Joseph. Uh, uh, Matthew's genealogy is from Abraham to Joseph. Here this is from Joseph to Adam. Uh, there are significant differences in names in certain sections of this genealogy from that which is in Matthew. Uh, there's a, the reverse order given in the, these genealogies. Uh, and so there's uh, great differences. And so there are those critics that would say, well, here's an error in the Bible. There's a mistake. They're not the same. It's the genealogy of Joseph, but they're not the same. And in all the debates, the most, one of the most sensible uh, understandings is that this genealogy, even though it's from Joseph down, is the genealogy of Mary. Uh, Matthew is the genealogy of Christ from Abraham down, the legal descendants, to show that he was indeed uh, of the line of the Messiah. Here, this genealogy, uh, still mentioning Joseph, uh, works its way down all the way to Adam to underscore that Jesus is part of uh, the human race. He's of man. Uh, There are people that don't like this solution, uh, but one of the customs of the day, it's the conjecture is that perhaps Mary didn't have any brothers. And if she didn't have any brothers, then the inheritance of the family would be passed on to another family. And it was a custom in the day that if a, a, a woman was single, no, no siblings, and was getting married, that the, mother, that the father of the bride would regularly adopt the man she was marrying so that the inheritance portion would remain in the family. But regardless of any and all of that, the point of this genealogy is for us to see the connection between the Christ and Adam as the son of man. Adam was the first Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. And he is... The son of man, he's a, a member of the human race. He's a, he's a man. Uh, Paul will talk about it, make this connection in other contexts. He says, as, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. He's connecting the two of them. They have a similar office. They're a covenant head. Adam's the covenant head of the human race, which Jesus is a part of. Jesus is the covenant head of the redeemed body of Christ. So we have Adam and Christ connected to show that Jesus Christ was not only God, but he was also man. And this is crucially important. If Jesus is not in one person, both God and man, then you have absolutely no hope. Because only as a man could he stand as your representative. Could he stand in your place? And represent you. But only as God could he bear the burden and weight of the wrath of God against our sin. He has to be both. Or there is no redemption. He has to be man to suffer for us. He has to be God to be able to suffer for us. And 
This is the revelation we have through Luke, through the rest of the New Testament, that Jesus Christ is both son of God and son of man. In Isaiah 64, the prophet cries out, Oh Lord, I wish you would rend your heaven and come down. And God answered that prayer in his coming in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. That is God coming in human flesh. And we behold his glory. And we see the, the glory of God revealed through, this, through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Christ, the son of God, became man, became a son of Adam, so that you and I could become children of God. May we embrace the truth of who Christ is and rest in his finished work uh, for us, done on the cross and his burial death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. May you and I find our hope in that. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the revelation of the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, the one in whom you are well pleased. We thank you for his coming, that he was washed. He went through the waters of baptism for us that he endured the judgment of your wrath against sin for us and that he lived in this world and uh, as the God-man is our redeemer. Thank you for him and his work. May we, O oh Lord, uh, rest in his, his care and in what he has accomplished. Give us faith to believe and embrace all that you have taught us about him. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.